Welcome to a milestone edition of the Talent Intelligence Collective podcast. That's right, by hook or by crook, we've hit our 20th episode. And what a cracker it is. In this one, me, Alan Walker, and of course, Alison Etridge of Strategens and Toby Coulter of Amazon, co-hosted an episode where we spoke to Joe Thompson of Booz Allen Hamilton. In the news bit, we covered off topics such as new talent intelligence tech releases, the surprising news that London is still the most popular work destination for Europeans, the worrying state of the global economy, and various studies that sadly show women have been the most adversely impacted by the pandemic. And in the Joe bit, the bit you've all tuned in for, we talked about the evolution of his career from working in the US Navy Submarine Service to heading up a talent transformation consulting function, and what talent intelligence means in his world and his definition of TI, and the importance of rebel ideas thinking in TI teams when drawing insight from data, and how long-range talent intelligence should be thinking, and the impact of technology on talent and vice versa. And trust me, so much more. This is a monster of an episode. So get comfy, get listening, get learning, and stay intelligent, folks. Have fun. Before we get on with the main event, I just wanted to remind you that this podcast is proudly sponsored by our friends at Strategens. And here's a very well-spoken chat to tell you a little bit more about them. Strategens gives HR leaders the data they need to transform businesses with the speed and ease required in today's world. If you're ready to make decisions that aren't lengthy, costly, one-dimensional, or based on gut feeling, visit strategens.com. That's S-T-R-A-T-I-G-E-N-S.com to register for a Wednesday demo drop-in and find out more. Hello, I'm Alan Walker, and welcome to episode 20 of the Talent Intelligence Collective podcast. Now, 20, that's a that's a real milestone. So let's have a huge... Anyway, I'm joined on the show by my usual co-host, Toby Coulshaw of Amazon and Alison Etridge of Strategens. Say hello, folks. Hello. 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 And of course, we have with us a guest, not just any old guest, but a fantastic guest. It's Joe Thompson of Booz Allen Hamilton. Joe, welcome to the podcast. Delighted to be here, Alan. I'm delighted to have you here. We're all delighted to have you here. Um, for those of our listeners that don't know you, can you give us a quick intro about who it is you are and what you do, please? And for those that might not know Booz Allen Hamilton, the same. Sure. So Booz Allen Hamilton is a technology consulting company. Um, we do a lot of worldwide, but our primary focus is the U.S. and particularly the U.S. government. At Booz Allen I'm a talent transformation executive and help lead our talent transformation practice. For us, talent transformation is about that nexus of the impact of technology on talent, which gets a lot of attention, but also the impact of talent on technology. So it's not a TI function per se, but it's TI is an important tool in my consulting toolbox and excellent fascinating stuff and um, i'm really i don't want to take too much of your thunder away early on joe because we're going to have a ton of questions for you for you later on but just to say it's again it's brilliant to have you on the podcast 
Um, Many Toby and Alison, of course, and all our listeners are really looking forward to hearing more about you and your work. Um, for any new listeners to the show, we do have them. Um, a quick reminder about the running order. In just a sec, Toby's going to guide us through guide us through the news, what's happening in the world of talent intelligence and the wider people space. And then Alison is going to step up and um, put on an interviewer extraordinaire hat and fire questions at Joe about talent intelligence in his world. And as usual, I'm going to go on mute in a second and um, kind of listen in and pipe up whenever necessary. So why don't we why don't we crack on, Toby? You're up first. What's happening in the world? First up is an announcement from Pro Unlimited uh, that they have launched a new talent intelligence platform, um, which is very interesting to see. It's always good to see the new platforms coming out and seeing how they're pushing things forward. So this one is called Total Talent Intelligence. Um, Honestly, I, I, I don't know too much about Pro Unlimited or, or this platform beyond the, new, the the press release, but it seems like they've got quite a broad uh, broad set of, of data points and broad exposure they're trying to cover. So everything from comp and vends and pay intel through to supply, demand, competitive landscape, and that whole kind of core talent intelligence piece, um, being able to cut by location, current employer, job history, that sort of stuff. And then they're also uh, rolling out both the data as a service side of the house, which will be more, I would imagine, the API uh, direct data access. And then last but not least, uh, something called Northstar HCM, which is their, their white glove data consumption model via um, the team of experts. So that sounds much more uh, akin to uh, kind of the, the workbench report type piece you might get from Talent Neuron or um, you know, the, 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 the individual that comes and gives them a bit more expert opinion um, from, from the vendors, et cetera. So, um, yeah, quite an interesting one. They say their proprietary data ocean has got 205 billion data points, um, and they're looking at 40,000 sources, 160 countries. As always, don't know too much until you dig into this stuff, get under the hood and dive into the detail. But um, on the face of it, quite interesting that we get another platform coming into this space. Uh, I know we discussed previously about a lot of VC funding coming into the, the, the TI world and uh, lots of new opportunities, new vendors coming up. And uh, yeah, it's interesting to see another one come through as well. Yeah, I think it's interesting because we're seeing a lot of these platforms and I wonder if, you know, more data um, is, is more clarity in some cases. Uh, I also look at a lot of these instruments and one of the things we perceive with our clients is if the interface looks good, well, then by golly, the, the data it contains must be accurate, right? <laughs> um, without really sort of digging into the what's behind the, the scenes. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, uh, but more and more platforms are coming onto the market. My, my question for you guys who know this space way, way better than I is, um, isn't there just huge overlap amongst the data that each of these platforms have? I think it's really interesting. I think this one for me is there'll be massive overlap in the talent intelligence piece, right? You know, supply and demand data, competitive landscape data. You can get that from strategies, from LinkedIn talent insights, from talent neuron, from Horsefly, you know, and now from you know, a new platform. The bit for me that's really interesting is the pay intel. Um, and if they've genuinely managed to nail real time pay and bill rate data for 10,000 jobs across all industry verticals, um, then I think that could be really interesting. But it, it kind of comes back really to Joe's point is, you know, I'm not sure more data brings more clarity. Um, mm. In fact, I think more data brings more confusion because I automatically read this and go 10,000 jobs, 
how are they normalizing job titles? How does that compare yeah. to you know, what we're doing? You know, so, and, and that's not a reflection on this business. That's just a reflection on the market and data and how it becomes transparent. And each of us could do something interesting with it. There is a quote, though, which I love um, from Christopher J. Dwyer, who's SVP of research at Ardent Partners and managing director of the Future of Work Exchange. And he says, a volatile labor market directly translates into a need for business leaders to harness the power of intelligence to execute critical talent-based decision-making. And I just think the only thing I would do is take talent-based out of that, just say it's all critical decision-making. And yeah, Joe and I will explore human capital and financial capital a bit later. But I just I think that's a great quote. Yeah, that's a great Compensation professional, I agree that normalizing, how do you know that, you know, one job at Amazon is, you know, remotely close to a similar job title somewhere else. And, you know, that's really the piece that underscores all of this is how good is that normalizing and the curating that underscores it. And as you said, it's not to, you know, say anything about pro unlimited. It's just the reality of working with all of this data and a constant challenge with these types of tools. Because even if you look at some of the more basic tools to look at pay data, I don't know, something like Glassdoor or something like that, you always see, even if you get down to a specific location, the ranges on them are insane for the same job title. And ranges realistically in, in a particular market, if you pick a city, a town or whatever it might be, where there's thousands of jobs advertised for the same role, the ranges can't really be as broad as the likes of Glassdoor are saying. So for there, it must be a, it's a job title issue, isn't it? What one person calls a manager, another person calls a director or a VP and, and has completely different responsibilities. So that normalization bit is is incredibly tough nut to crack. But also, I think it'll, this will pick up on, um, on some of the SCI's um, uh, commitment that you have to publish job data in the U.S., and, and actually they talk about it being global, but yeah, globally, you do not have to publish pay data and therefore if you're basing it on job advertisements which it's going to need to be i guess to be real time um then there's a question mark that says how accurate is that yeah yeah fair play to them if they've nailed it fantastic we'll try and pull them in as a data source um you know just <laughs> you know, awesome news uh but yeah with, with all of these things that as toby said proof in the pudding i think on that pay piece the, the, the vendors that i think will had the closest um, closest data set in, in the real world is probably once you start seeing people like ADP coming through and the payroll providers or um, some of the RPO firms or, or some of these kind of big labor market organizations, I think that their pay accuracy is going to be the closest to real time and showing how things are changing in the market and what candidates are demanding in the real time, et cetera. Um, I guess that the overlay you get there is uh, client confidentiality and how do they um, drag that up in an anonymized way, but then also to, to your points earlier, how do you know X role in Y client is the same as X role in Z client? You know, the, the, that, yeah. that normalization is just so hard. Hence the, hence the brackets. Anyway, fair, you know, fair play to him and good luck. Mm. Absolutely. So what else is happening, Toby? Yeah, there was an interesting uh, survey manual, not sure what it was, done by um, the Intelligence Group in the Netherlands. And it's the European Talent Intelligence Manual 2022. Um, 
really a nice, nice document, to be honest. The Intelligence Group have been publishing some quite good work uh, recently. I quite like the way that they're publishing it. Quite a broad breadth of different talent intel type of pieces. Um, this one was a, a study diving into about 100,000 Europeans digging into what they want into to cities and um, how they like to work and what the top 10 cities to work are um, are in. Are in. That's not that's not very good English, is it? Clearly, I haven't had enough coffee today, or too much, one or the other. Anyway, moving on. Um, so the top 10 cities, uh, surprisingly, London came out number one in, uh, across the world. So they, they dived into it for the across all the Europeans, but obviously where Europeans want to work. Uh, top 10 was London, New York, Paris, Berlin, Barcelona, Madrid, Sydney, Rome, Amsterdam, Vienna. So personally, I was quite surprised to see London up there, uh, considering mm. everything that's going on in the, the world post-Brexit. Inflation rate looking to hit 18% across the UK. Like, I was really surprised to see London still being attractive at all, to be honest. Um, yeah. Some of the other cities, yeah, but London didn't see it. Are you familiar with the um, what, what's called the Pret Index, Toby? No, tell me more. So the Pret Index is, um, you know, it's the store chain Pret a Manger, which is you know all over, and they've been looking at the sales. And Bloomberg publishes you know continual updates, um, but they're using the store sales at Pret a Mangers to act as a surrogate for. You know, people and, and where they're working. And the current Pret Index shows that London City is still at about 80% of pre-pandemic traffic, whereas the London suburbs are about 20% higher. So it, it's interesting to me when you, they're, this intelligence manual is pegging London, but I don't think that we're seeing that in some of the other data sources unless you're talking about sort of the periphery of of london yeah and i think that that probably holds true with a lot of cities where i know in the u.s there was the big study and they um we spoke about it on the, the pod probably about a year ago in fact where it was around hollowing out of cities and you're just seeing a lot of people shifting out once they could work remotely shifting out to the suburbs and seeing um you know the, the retail uh, sorry, the, the real estate prices jumping in the outskirts and the suburbs and the, the center of town having less less people living within. And I think that, that seems to be a, an ongoing trend. But yeah, there, there, there just isn't as much demand for center of town living at the moment. But it'd be interesting to see how that's changing with the kind of restrictions lifting a little. Um, you know, you've got the next generations coming through post-university, et cetera. Often the migration to, to bigger cities is the younger workforce. So it'll be interesting to see how that, how that changes if it does. Yeah, and I'm, 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 I don't, look, Intelligence Group produced some really good stuff, but for, there's too much detail that's lacking for me in this. Who did they survey? How's it split? What are the age groups? You know, what's the difference across different professions? You know, what are they basing good on? You know, is it a talent attractiveness indices? Is it, you know, ESG policies for individuals and what matters? Is it ability to be able to get to work or commute times? You know, there's just, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's great, but there's a lot of detail I'd like to see behind it before using it as, you know, for any informed decision making. It's Sorry, all about the quality group. for decision making, though. I, I, I agree. I think it's, it's interesting to spark conversation, but without really diving into the detail of okay, what was the hundred thousand? How do they split by demographic, socioeconomic groups, profession, whatever it is? Um, uh, yeah, I agree. 
Right, so what next, Toby? Next up. So um, rather than digging into one specific piece for the next one, I, I, just a bit of a recurrent trend. So um, one of the recurrent trends we're seeing across a lot of markets at the moment is the fact that the labor markets in a lot of regions, a lot of countries are still pretty strong, and but tough, tough to hire into. Um, but they're still pretty strong. You know, there's still a lot of hiring going on, lots of job movements going on, um, low unemployment rates in lots of places. But the economic conditions are being pretty, pretty tough, and it's not not necessarily terribly great. So there's various reports out. Um, you know, stagflation cushioned by solid labor market in Poland. Obviously, the U- U.S. labor market still going full steam ahead, but obviously, depending on the definition, is it recession? Is it not? That's a debate for the economists in the room. Um, you know, the UK labor market, very di- difficult situation where you've you've got once again. The overall economy looking pretty tough, and I mentioned earlier, inflation looking up towards 18%. But then there's still a, a lot of jobs out there, and it's still a very hot market. And uh, the, the government said it's a dangerous game of chicken uh, with pay rises on, on the workforce. So just uh, more generally, rather than diving into specific countries, and you know, New Zealand as well actually flagged up uh, big labor market shortages, wage pressure, um, as, as the, the market's still pretty, pretty buoyant and aggressive. So it's more of a general point. We're just in this very uncertain time, and I know we've been in an uncertain time for the last two years. But this one in particular, it feels very, very different in that the the economy the economy is looking really tough, and there are some companies making some really big decisions, particularly with how they're making redundancies and carving out TA teams on whole. You know, I saw um, a, a firm just today got rid of their entire sourcing team in the US, just cut cut the whole lot. Um, so it, it's fascinating, given how how bad predictions generally are in terms of the the economy and the accuracy and forecast of, of uh, economic conditions. It, I find it fascinating how aggressively a lot of companies are reacting and how deep they're cutting on the on the redundancies. Given they're still hiring, you know, as an industries, we're still looking for people. We're still short of workers. We still have very low unemployment. It's, it's a fascinating com- conflict that's going on at the moment. There was a really interesting article that Josh Burson put onto LinkedIn um, this week that's linked to this, and he calls it the confusing job market. CEOs and CHROs seem baffled. Um, and there was a, some quotes in it from some data that are taken from a PwC Pulse survey on business leaders that said 52% of CEOs were implementing hiring freezes, but 64% were increasing compensation, were 70% were increasing flexible work options, 49% were encouraging employees who left to rejoin. So it's like half of the companies are slowing down their hiring, but two thirds are trying to improve retention, increase flexibility, encourage people to go back into the office. You know, it was just like, ah, so we've got a job market over here that's in crisis. You know, workers are burned out, employees are taking a break, demand for workers is you know constant and yet that's being counterbalanced by this kind of never-ending news cycle about a recession that you know whilst and he he's saying it quite rightly whilst the gdp has slowed and interest rates have gone up actually demand for products and services hasn't necessarily gone down so it's really confusing if you're a business leader right now and and therefore they're reacting to this big reset but i think and i hope joe and i can explore this on our call i think this is this is more about changing the skills within an organization um, and and doing it kind of quickly. So it's driving transformation, I think, of the skills in an organization rather than necessarily decreasing numbers. 
yeah, I'd love for you both to dig into that a lot yeah. more in the next section because I think also there's an opportunity here where I think org design and org effectiveness and org redesign is probably something that should be hot on people's agendas now. Uh, so looking to, to have organizations that run more efficiently, more effectively, et cetera. But I'm yeah. not sure, I, I'm not seeing a huge amount of, of movement in that in the industry, just in terms of network and, and commentary. I'm not seeing massive amounts of internal org redesign around this. Maybe it's all happening, I'm just not aware. But um, I'm surprised that people are taking a, it, what seems like and feels like a reactive short-term approach largely obviously driven by often by finance on these things where you know cut cut the headcount to, to make things healthier for a few quarters rather than saying well actually it, it takes six months to get people back on board and up to speed so you know even if you're looking to hire back into q1 q2 next year it seems very reactive so yeah I'm definitely interesting you guys digging into this a bit more yeah. I think people are Sorry, generally yeah, reaching for the same tools they've always used toby and i think the, the risk is that this is a different set of, of conditions all at the same time. And so that tendency to reach for the tool that's always worked in the past, I, I think, is not going to be very useful in this particular case. Um, and I think that's going to be a real challenge for business to figure out. Uh, I'll also say, Toby, my hat off to you because uh, I learned being hit for six, what, what that means, because that was in one of the quotes. And I, as a uh, American, I had to say, well, what in the world is hit for six? So uh, I learned something new. I guess you'd call it a home run, Joe, maybe, or something along those lines. It was used in the sense of people's negative. real wages are, are being hit ah, for okay. six. Okay, yeah, yeah. So, what, would your, what would your version be, Joe? Um, I, I think... Uh, really thrown for uh, a ride, or, or perhaps someone has really thrown a wrench in the works for people. But it's a interesting challenge because, as perceived wages or real wages go down, there's a lot of pressure on how do you compensate for that. Businesses can't just always raise the, the salaries. So I think it's a real, a real talent issue. Absolutely, and I think there's going to be a, a big spike. I imagine in um, in that we talked about demand earlier, and that demand hasn't gone down for services and goods. I I've got a feeling it's going to go down pretty quickly soon as the energy price cap comes in. In I think it's tomorrow, is it here in the UK? Mm. I'm sure some of the things are happening elsewhere because certainly, you know, the vast majority of the consumers are middle income people or even lower income actually. If, if you class if you count them as a mass in terms of their spending. And suddenly they're going to have a massive hit to their available income. So that's going to, no doubt going to have a huge impact on, on the consumer spend. Completely agree. I think that's the interesting paradigm that we face, though, because if consumer spending is going down and consumer confidence is going down, which, you know, it's going to go down if you're all being told it's facing an economy and it's uncertain, you're all going to you know, tighten the belts and, as you say, the fuel caps, et cetera. Um, but then at breakfast the other month, um, there was a, a great presentation by Reed, and they were saying that the, the number one driver for, for job changes at the moment from a recent survey they did was um, salary and cost of living crisis and salary increases. So it, it, there's still going to be, I think, that this, this uncertainty in the market. People are going to be hesitant to move. It's going to be harder to get people to move, um, and people are going to want salary increases. But that, that, I think that's where we, we find this strange situation that so many 
recruitment teams in particular are getting hit by these cuts, but it's going to be harder than ever to get anybody on. So any any recruitment you're doing at all, I think it's people are going to find it harder and harder to attract and engage talent, um, even more so than they found it in the last couple of years. So yeah, I think it's going to be a, a really fascinating period where where do, you, where do you put your money? Do you try and reinvest it and keep people and stop them from going, or do you invest it in trying to approach my way and, and pay a higher salary? It's, it's going to be it's going to be fascinating. I think this is where we need to be um, talking a lot more about this total cost of ownership that we talk about a lot yeah, anyway, and just going, actually, you've got to start taking into account what's the cost of an empty seat, because mm. whilst you can take headcount out now, the impact of the cost of that empty seat by the time you allow for time to hire, cost to hire, um, ability to get people on board and, and, and up and running um, and effective, actually, your, your cost savings in the short term will be helpful but in the longer term that's why yeah and joe will explore this a bit more this kind of this is a different set of conditions you can't reach for the tools you've always used before we'll come back to that do you think hr have got a strong enough voice to to push the the conversation around it mtc and the total cost versus finance who, who obviously talk generally in, in in very traditional finance metrics and, and you know you're looking at the pure cost cost base and bottom line um do you think we have a strong enough voice and is it scientific enough as an approach to be valid and seen as valid by the C-suite? I think it's scientific enough as approach um, because it's all data driven, right? So, um, yeah, that should be that should be a tick box exercise. I think the um, have HR got a strong enough voice depends on how many of them are commercial and having those conversations already. So that's going to differ from company to company. Yeah, I, w- I would agree. And I would say that it's not intrinsic to HR. I think it's sort of what's that relationship that a particular HR organization has already crafted with the business. If they're already seen as a um, provider of differentiated capability and help the business, I think they can be listened to if they're viewed sort of just as a cost center or just as a ancillary support um, component, then I think that the, the financial piece will tend to uh, dominate the conversation. So I think it's less about the function, Toby, and more about that all-important relationship that's pre-existed before you've gotten into this you know, period of stress. Yeah, completely agree. But even, even a good CFO and finance function shouldn't understand this empty seat concept, shouldn't they? It's very easy to go down to pure bottom line kind of numbers, but actually, if they're smart CFOs or smart finance functions, etc., they should get that. They should understand that, and surprise, they don't. It shouldn't even have to be HR to a certain degree that are driving that conversation. True, completely agree. Yeah, you know, me, okay. I'm only just posing the questions here. I, I'm not. I'm not having an opinion one way or the other. Just posing the question. <laughs> but I agree. I uh, my response to what you asked. Um, Toby is that a lot of HR people probably aren't comfortable having those conversations, don't know how to have those conversations, and probably bow down to their their financial overlords to a certain degree. They should be good at it. They should be better at it by now. You know, um, data's been available for years around this topic. Um, it's just that many of them aren't. Many of them are, back to Joe's point, the almost internal order takers. What do we need to do for you, Mr. Business, Mrs. Business? And we'll do it rather than actually challenging challenging things. Yeah, I'd agree. I'd agree. Right. One more bit of news, do you think, Toby? 
Yeah, one more, one more squeeze. And so I'm going to squeeze a, a nod in to a, a first bit of news and then I'll, I'll say my last bit. So I just wanted to flag something that sort of about New Zealand again, um, where the overall low unemployment rate at the moment, but it was specifically around the fact that disabled people are, are finding it harder than, than ever. Um, and al although the unemployment rate for uh, the general population was 3.1%, uh, for disabled people age over 15, um, it was up at 6.8%. Um, and you know, similarly, if you look at the kind of just purely 15 to 64-year-olds, uh, disabled people, it, it was up at 79 non-disabled people, 3.3%. So um, yeah, definitely something going on over in New Zealand. And I, I would I imagine this is being mirrored in other geographies, but I wouldn't want to assume that. Um, it would have to look at the data, but yeah, just just something of interest that the the disabled population are definitely finding it harder to get into the workforce. Still, um, I know it's something that we we all struggle with uh, across most labour forces, but I um, just wanted to flag that as a sub news. But my last bit of news I wanted to dive into was a report from uh, Hiring Lab, so the economic research team over at uh, Indeed. So this was by um, Anne Elizabeth Conkle. Svenja Goodall and Tara Sinclair. And this was specifically around women lagging men in the pandemic economic recovery. Um, we've discussed parts of this previously where we saw uh, women being disproportionately affected through the whole uh, crisis. And, and there were certain sectors that were obviously hit much, much harder and, and that had a higher um, female uh, labor force participation rate. So they got hit harder. And then off the back of that, we're seeing um, the, the fact that childcare facilities were low and it's a high cost of childcare. So that's made that harder to, for people to come back into the workforce. Um, loss of pay and, and work experience, once again, setting women further back. Um, but, uh, and it's, it's just one thing after another. Um, back, so a lot of the, the, the female uh, employment rates are actually now worse than pre-pandemic levels. And then obviously in the US, most recently, they highlighted that you've got the Roe versus Wade. Another factor darkening the, the the long run outlook for women's economic well-being. So, um, yeah, it's it's not. We've we've highlighted before that the pandemic had a, a big negative effect on DNI generally, but specifically for women in the workforce. And um, yeah, sadly, it's not looking like that's being solved anytime soon. And this is one of those areas where the return to work, return to office, I should say, people get upset at return to work, but return to office policies we know have uh, often a disproportionate impact on, on women and on underrepresented groups. And in the haste, in some cases, to drive people back into the office setting, you wonder if that doesn't further hamper the economic recovery of women, um, you know, broadly speaking. And so it's going to be interesting to see how it moves forward. Yeah, this for me was really, really interesting. So um, Jamie D um, Dimon, or Diamond, forgive me um, for not knowing how to pronounce that, who's the CEO of JP Morgan, Chase, talked about the return of office-based working as a way of boosting diversity. And that's just spectacularly unfounded assertion. Sorry, Jamie. Yeah, because we know that flexible working is important for talent attraction and retention in a competitive talent market. McKinsey's showed across six countries, workplace flexibility was the number one reason for taking a job and the number four reason for quitting. LinkedIn data showed that women are 26% more likely than men to apply to work remotely. And furthermore, there was a study by Future Forum that showed that 21% of white knowledge workers wanted a return to full office work. 
and that compared to only 3% of black knowledge workers. So I just think, yeah, it, this is to touch on Joe's point, you know, we've got a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity here to reset all of the norms around work with a view to changing how we bring women back into the workplace and to how we improve um, our diversity around ethnicity. And we're just, forgive me, screwing it up. <laughs> and, and now is the time for us to do it and do it properly. Yeah, I don't think Jamie Dimon is alone in, in having many um, assertions about return to office, which are disconnected from the data. I think a lot of it is, you know, people crafting points to, you know, that suit their the narrative that they already have yes. and not using data as the basis for the decision. Uh, completely. And God, what a neat segue. Absolutely, without a doubt. So, shall we? Do you think it's time? Should we chat to Joe a, a little bit more about his world rather than the wider world? Alison, yes. are, are you ready? I'm ready, not least because that you, you know, um, Joe. Thank you for digging me out. That wasn't a complete dig at Jamie. That was just something I felt very, <laughs> very passionate about, and I just happened to pick on him. Um, I wanted to touch. I love your background. So, but one of the things that I wanted to touch on was life in a submarine because that's something that I don't think anyone else on this podcast can relate to. But could you talk about life in a submarine and how that's impacted your view on, on data and data and what we need to be doing? Sure. So, you know, I started my, my career in the, the U.S. Navy submarine service and I've logged something like three years of my life underwater. And to me, the interesting thing when you're on a submarine is that you can't take in the world around you from your, your, your primary senses, your eyes, your, your ears. And you have to interpret the world around you and what's going on through data. And I think that was very you know, formative in you know, helping to give me the confluence of skills that I use in, in TI today. But I think two key things, Allison, that I, I feel like really stuck with me from that is this idea that first off, by the time you get all the data you need to know with certainty, it's too late to act on it with um, strategic or tactical advantage. You have to become comfortable at sort of making decisions based on when you have enough data. And that's a real struggle for some people, but certainly learn that. And I think the other really big lesson that I learned is it's not enough to know what the current data tells you. You have to take the data you have, you have to um, forecast it out into the future like a hypothesis, and then you have to compare the, the next sets of data you get against the hypothesis you've created. And it's often in understanding the deviation between what you're really seeing and what you thought you would see that true insight comes. And so I think those are two of the really big data lessons that I sort of have taken with me from that experience. That alone, that last minute of conversation, <laughs> it was just why I was so excited to talk to you, because I just think it's really interesting. And, and um, we had a bit of a pre-conversation because I wanted to understand what I could, could talk with Joe about. Um, but particularly, I think it would be great, therefore, to understand what what does TI mean in your world, Joe, kind of linking to that conversation we've just had? 
Yeah, I think, you know, for me, as I said at the beginning, it's it's a tool in my, you know, my talent toolbox. And I know on this program, you've talked in the past about, well, what is TI and, you know, does it all sort of fit, you know, nicely under one one umbrella? But you've often talked on this program about sort of the, the different lenses, right? There's the the very tactical talent acquisition. There's sort of the broader lens of workforce planning. And, you know, what are you doing with your workforce all the way up through that, you know, loftier um, business uh, decision that, you know, Toby likes to, to operate at. And for a lot of our clients, it's really trying to help them use data so that they can make better decisions. You know, and particularly today, I think where no manager, no leader anywhere in business has grown up operating under the confluence of circumstances we have with the labor market, with um, a global competition for talent, you know, driven by, you know, remote work with the high inflation, all of those things. And so people's natural tendency, the heuristics that they want to use to make decisions don't serve them well today. And so a lot of it is really trying to use the the data to give them a different lens through which to view the problem set, not just, you know, the solution. You have to use the, the, the data to change how they even view the problem. And so a lot of times I think that's, you know, kind of what we try and look at. So an example, if you will. Perfect. The conference board, uh, a group in the the U.S., Mm -hmm. produces what they call a labor shortage index. And they look at labor shortage through a series of different um, indices. So they look at the the difference between the perceived demand and supply. They also look, though, at for a given occupation, how much education and training it takes to get somebody up to speed in that occupation. And they also look at the flexibility of being able to reskill somebody into or into that occupation. And it's really interesting because it it sort of everybody is used to saying, oh, labor is tight, right? There's a shortage of of talent and and everybody sort of wants to kind of treat it in this singular monolithic idea. But the, the cool thing in that labor shortages database is you can go in and for a given role, for a given occupation that a client may be having difficulty with, it gives you some data to be able to say, you know, how solvable is this problem from a TA perspective? Because if fundamentally the demand so far outstrips the supply, well, maybe talent acquisition isn't going to let you hire your way to success. But maybe that same skill, um, it's very flexible to move people into it. And, and so that's an example of trying to use a, a data source to get people to, to sort of think of the problem differently. Instead of, I need to hire for this occupation, well, maybe that's not going to give you results. Maybe what we should be talking about instead is, how are you going to 
upskill somebody into this occupation. So that's kind of an example, I think, of, you know, trying to use the talent data to shift the framing of the question and consulting, getting to the right question, getting to the actual underlying, you know, diagnosis is everything, right? Because, you know, the, the number one rule of consulting is don't treat the symptoms, treat the, the underlying problem. Yeah, that's really kind of what you're looking for? Yeah, and it's really interesting because we, um, one of our clients is a telecoms infrastructure client, a strategist client, and they have an RPO business. Um, and the RPO came to us, or an RPO, sorry, who, who delivers their talent acquisition. Um, the RPO came to us and said, look, we've got real problems delivering this role. You know, we, these are the hard skills that are involved with delivering it. And we said, look, it's quite, this is quite tactical, actually, for strategists, but let's dig around in the data lake and see what we can find. And when we looked at it, there were six hard skills and skills, you know, if, if, they, if the line managers were insisting on all six of those skills, there were something like 1,250 people in the UK um, and they were all contractors. So we were like, well, you know, this is your problem. <laughs> the problem is that, yeah. you know, with all six of these skills, there aren't enough people. But actually, if you remove skill six and skill five, then your talent pool opens up to more than 14,000. So the question you need to be asking is, can we upskill in skill five and six? Because if we can upskill and retrain and reskill, our talent pool you know, multiplies by the most enormous amount. And actually, you know what? We might have that in-house. So it's a completely different, it's, it's being proactive and looking at the problem, isn't it? And not, you know, kind of looking at what's banging us over the head. Uh, absolutely. And, you know, I, we see a lot of managers who sort of intuit the skills that they think they need, often sort of based on, you know, their own um, experience and projecting on to then what an ideal candidate needs without a lot of real analysis of what are the, the driving skills. And I think a lot of times we see people that want to list sort of here are the 12, 15 or 20 skills somebody needs. And the reality is you're never going to be able to hire somebody with 20, you know, skills you know, on a consistent basis and trying to walk people down to, yeah, but what are the six that make a difference in the first, you know, six months. What are the ones which, if they don't have, they're not going to succeed? And it's a real challenge sometimes to get people to move past their preconceived notions of what matters to what you can demonstrate matters, especially because in a lot of digital talent, Allison, it's not about the technical skill, it's it's the soft skill. So yeah. we do a lot of work for cybersecurity talent. And cybersecurity talent is very interesting to me because it has almost the exact same skills as IT talent. But the big differentiator we find between someone who is a wonderful at uh, cybersecurity versus IT, it's those soft skills that usually are the ones hardest to identify hardest to assess, but that's where you make or break somebody from a cybersecurity perspective. And there was something, and, um, forgive me, Toby, you might be able to um, help me out here. It was on the collective WhatsApp group this week. There was something that talked about um, the, the most in-demand technical skills this year, and actually all of them were soft <laughs> skills. None of them were kind of hard skills. They were all um, soft skills, which ties into exactly what you were saying, Joe. I wanted to pick up on something you said a minute ago that was, um, I think, quite interesting. And it was this kind of balance between 
making decisions that are data-led versus making decisions that are instinct or gut or experience-led. And you talked about what are you calibrating that against? Can you just expand on that a bit more? Yeah, so I'm going to shift just slightly. I'm taking a a page from Nick, I think. But but let's kind of back up a second and, and talk about what I think TI even is or how it's defined. And I think that that's a challenge because, you know, Toby has said TI has a lot of hats to wear. But, you know, to me, at its most distilled, I think that talent intelligence is the application of science to the art of people management. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when I look at that, to me, it's not just sort of the data science piece of, of TI, but it's also the the scientific methodology and, and creating that hypothesis, but then you'll always have to blend it to that, that art, right? I mean, people are messy. People are illogical at times. People are emotional. They have their own, how dare they, needs and aspirations. So, you know, it's always an art and the two kind of have to go together. And so I think that that's really, you know, when I look at how do you apply this, a lot of people in that art um, area they they want to rely on sort of their 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 judgment and you have to be able to I think apply a little bit of the science to it. It's only by you know using the two in combination that I think you get to meaningful insights. Either one on its own, too much on the science side, I think you lose the the real people aspect. So you know an example there, uh, most workforce planning efforts that I've seen tend to fundamentally fail because they approach the workforce planning from a supply chain management lens. And we sort of draw on the best of Demings and, you know, supply chain management concepts and try to treat people like they're parts in the supply chain, but but parts don't think, right? And a lot of the workforce planning, it fundamentally misses the what's in it for that talent. And, you know, they're always surprised when, you know, the the people side of the equation doesn't, you know, map out exactly the way that they had forecast that it should have, you know, 12 or 18 months before. And so to me, that's a good example of if you only use the science piece and you miss that, that part of the, you know, you, you're missing it. I think, you know, for a lengthier definition that I think is also useful here to me, talent intelligence is about using that qualitative and quantitative data to build hypotheses that can foster better conversations that then go to better decisions. And, you know, as I've said, I think it's really trying to use those hypotheses to sort of poke holes in, in what people have already assumed, to ask those better questions and to have those better conversations. And, Finally, I guess if I were to wax poetically for Alan, I'll say that uh, talent intelligence to me is using data-driven insights to dispel talent myths and bolster what I'll call adapt agility. Because I think in you know today's world, this this you know kind of adapt agility is is everything. It's it's really important today. So. Well- that's kind of my long-winded way to your lovely question, Alison. Um, well, and I've written down all of your lovely answers, Joe, so I'm going to steal some of those quotes just 
just as a forewarning um, for the I, future. I've got my printer lined up already, printing me some posters for my wall. These are brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but one of the things that you talked about then, I think, is is really interesting in this space, particularly is yeah. And, and you're talking to someone who runs a data business, right? So everything that we do, we we, we do through the lens of data. But we built stratagems having been qualitative researchers. So we built stratagems to fill the data gaps that qualitative research couldn't fill. Right. And, and, but what we're hearing and what we're seeing in our clients and in what you're saying is that actually you still have got to fundamentally have the combination of data and qualitative research for it to answer the so what um, and I think that's really interesting in, in the work, particularly that you're doing along with others. It's, it's how can you challenge the question that you're being asked to make sure that it's a more sensible question that's going to get you to a better decision in the long run rather than the what's in front of us right now. Um, yeah. yeah, and, and that it's you know, the, the combination of qual and quant to build, and I'm quoting it back, to build hypotheses, to foster conversations, to lead to better decisions, I just think is, is a really interesting piece and when we interviewed i'm trying to think it was kim i think it was oh was it kim from ams toby can you um from yeah was it kim who came on from ams kim bryan kim bryan yeah yeah yep. cute. thank you toby's gone to sleep thanks alan um I'm here. it was i was saying yes i was saying yes you were on <laughs> I mute, want, toby. i didn't want to interrupt you you were chasing for the name. I didn't want to just jump in and you know oh. talk over the top of you. Chasing hey, kids, name kids, kids stop bickering. Um, anyway, <laughs> back so to the show. <laughs> <laughs> but but Kim was particularly talking about the makeup of her team and saying that it was interesting that in her team, lots of people had got a drama or a music right. background. Um, and, and it was fascinating that, that that's the kind of creative balance to the data that we've talked about, isn't it? It's the how do we bring people in who are creative and can answer this question as much as anything else? It's, it's rebel ideas, right? Or, yeah. as, you know, or you can go all the way back to the Palo Alto Research Center where, you know, Xerox invented, you know, the, the mouse and the graphical user interface and all of those things because they brought in such diversity of ways of, of thinking uh, about things. But, you know, when you're talking about the tools and the databases, and I think in many ways it's the difference between macroeconomics and, you know, microeconomics. I think you can use the data to sort of look at big trends and, and big issues. The, but when you get down to an organization level, whether you're talking about a company or a component in a company, then I think that's where you have to understand things like culture and practice and the, the individual makeup therein. I was talking, and I, know I don't want to get the name wrong, but um, I think it's Garrett Schimmelpenick who yep, you had had on. And you know, he was telling me he was interested in seeing what the data was going to show about the difference between um, the success of companies who were remote versus those who came back to the office. And, and I told him I thought that was a worthwhile endeavor. And I asked him how he was going to control, though, for the companies that are coming back in person but aren't changing how they operate to accommodate sort of, you know, where we're at or the companies that are remote, but they are using the better techniques because 
to me, it's not about whether you're in office or you're home. It's about what are you doing, you know, with your people? How are you leveraging the workforce you have? And so that's the part where I think that this art of people management is really the key at understanding what's what are the drivers. Um, many years ago, Allison, I was at a a, a training, a human capital training, and they were talking about needing to have the right strategy. And they used a metaphor of the Battle of Britain. And they mm-hmm. talked about how when you look at the Battle of Britain and the way that they described it is that, you know, the RAF was sending up its very best pilots to defend the skies and the Luftwaffe was sending over their second and third string pilots. And you look at the outcome and gosh, if only the Luftwaffe had used the, the strategy of the RAF. And I had to challenge the, um, the, the presenter because they said, well, it's totally different because if an RAF plane got shot down and the pilot bails out, he falls into, you know, he parachutes into a, you know, a farmland and gets put on a lorry and shipped back to the base and goes back up again. If a Luftwaffe pilot gets shot down over Britain, well, he gets rounded up and put in the POW camp. So, you know, it's one of those things of people want to take, oh, look what worked for Google. That's what we'll do here without really looking at, yeah, but what's your company? How is it differing? And, And so that to me is Again, back to this idea of you always have to put the, the data that you have into that lens of of sort of your culture, your people. I, I think that there's there's something one of the things I think that holds HR back if we if we're thinking about the conversation we're having earlier on how commercial and, and people's different views on how commercial HR can be in challenging CFOs. One of the challenges we've got is that we have got to start thinking about access to the skills that we need as organizations in right. in the terms of human capital, right? So that is your supply chain piece. You, we've yep. got to start thinking about the collective as a supply chain, but then we've got to balance that with the fact that the supply chain thinks and breathes and doesn't react in, in a predictable fashion. So this is your balance between science and art. But I think one of the things that holds HR back is this this wariness to refer to people as human capital because they think they're going to get in trouble. And yet as businesses, if we don't start managing access to skills in that way, then you know, we've got real challenges coming up. Um, I just, I'd love your views on kind of the term human capital and how we can encourage teams to think differently about that. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. And I think it's gone through a number of, of- iterations over its its life you know if you go back into the you know the 1950s 1960s there wasn't really an HR department there was a personnel department and you couldn't get to the c-suite without having you know done a, a, a tour through there it was recognized as that's the key to business success and then somewhere in the 1970s we said no no HR needs to be its own standalone thing. It's it's too arcane for mere mortals to understand. And so we pushed out all of the business leaders from it. And we said, you business leaders are far too posh and important to, to be here in HR. Let us HR professionals handle the muck for you. Um, you know, it's an interesting you know idea, but I think that it, it started that schism that we continue to see between, you know, the, the HR and the business. But 
one of the big lessons I feel like we've learned in the context of the pandemic is that we don't have workers who happen to have lives on the side. We we have people who happen to have jobs. And for some of the, the more enlightened companies, I would say one of the big aha moments of the pandemic was recognizing that, you know, you really do have humans in human capital. Um, there's a, a brilliant company down in uh, Australia, Humanico, that is really all about trying to get people to see the workforce at that human lens. It, it's a really cool way that they're trying to use data sources to humanize the workforce. I, I, I applaud what they're doing. But, you know, this big aha moment for many companies is we have to recognize that these are humans in the loop, not cogs in the machine. We had pre-pandemic, I think we'd been working towards this, you know, shifting from the organization as machine metaphor to the organization as organism. And I think that was kind of a useful thing, but really it's, it's people. And so I think human capital is the right term if you put the emphasis on human. If you put the yes. emphasis on capital, I think then that's where you start to go down those, those rabbit holes of thinking that you can manage your way out of, of everything, that uh, it's just about creating the right policy or the right strategy. And you know, what we often find is that the, you know, having the right policy that's table stakes. The game is won or lost on the basis of the day-to-day practices within the organization because it's really about how one human is relating with another human to either you know, drive or, or hamper business success. So uh, it's, a really, it's a really interesting time. And in, uh, so that's kind of my, my, again, long-winded answer to your lovely question. It wasn't long-winded, but but equally, there's you know one of the things that happened through the pandemic is that business leaders, instead of spitting out some sort of phrase that said people are our greatest asset, suddenly went, oh my god, you know, people are our greatest asset because without them, we're in big trouble. Um, I, I wanted to you, you talked a, a little bit about um, the Battle of Britain earlier, and we refer to battlefield intelligence, to tactical intelligence, and to strategic intelligence. Right. How far out and how long range do you think TI should be? Well, to try and channel my inner Toby here, right? I, I think that it it needs to span, you know, from very close into to very far out. So, you know, a lot of companies, I'm going to use a metaphor, are like sort of one of those big ships out on the sea where they've got the close-in search radar because they need to know what obstacles may be right in their immediate path. Um, Then they have the mid-range so that they can sort of see ships coming over the horizon. And then they've got those long-range search radars to give them that broader situational awareness. And to me, I think TI is is like that. You don't go to a ship designer and say, oh, tell me which one radar you want. You'll never see a ship that has one radar. They always have multiple ones with multiple functions, and they have those different ranges. So 
I, I think you have to have TI be all of those. And I think you want TI to try to look ahead as, as long as the planning horizon of that business or that organization. Mm-hmm. You just have to recognize that your crystal ball becomes, you know, much more um, informed conjecture. Whereas when you're in at that close in, it's much more real, you know, although a lot of times sort of lagging data. And so I think that that's the, the, the piece you have to, to be able to, to balance. It, I don't think it's one or the other. And again, I think it's match your planning to the, the business planning needs. You probably need to be about a, a couple of years ahead of them on that. So I completely agree. And I think it's, it's, um, yeah, something as simple as you know, where do we grow or where do we invest um, our business? Yeah, it is that can be long range, right? That should be long range because if you don't talk about that in a long range perspective, i.e., access to the people that we need in order to grow our business, then what happens is you end up in the battlefield, right? Because yeah. then it's how the hell yeah. that yeah, we're already here. How do we get them? Toby, and you're you're theoretically, could you kind of discuss your views around radars and um, long range and short range? Yeah, I think it's a really good analogy um, for for a lot of elements of TI. Um, so I, there was a, an instance in a company I once led a TI team at, um, without naming names, where. We had HR come to us and say, look, this specific competitor is is attacking us. We're, we're getting loads of staff going over there for a very particular product um, manufacturing facility. And this particular competitor had never made this product, wasn't even in that field, not, not even in the same industry. So there was no reason for this to happen. And so the team at the time was very newly, newly formed. We, we'd only been going for about, about three months. We were still kind of finding our feet. And uh, I started digging into this. And I realized that three years earlier, this particular competitor had uh, stolen a VP in this field uh, from another organization. Now, no one from threat intelligence picked up on it. No one from competitor intelligence picked up on it. No one from exec search research picked up on it because they weren't doing that sort of mapping at that time. Um, and, and it kind of went under the radar. And then a couple of years later, they filed some intellectual property uh, forms and the IP team, there was no conflict conflict of interest. There was no conflict on the IP, so they didn't flag it. No one really noticed. And it's only when it came through to us that they started thinking, well, actually, we've probably only got about twelve months before this competitor launches a core product into our core market, mm. and no one's seen it coming at all. And uh, that was where my kind of uh, idea at the time was to have a, an early warning threat detection around this sort of work, where you say, well, actually. What are these early warning signs? Is it opening up new, new facilities? Is it hiring new VPs or, or into new fields they've never been into? Is it pivoting skill sets that they've never hired for before and they're suddenly looking into? Um, and then rolling that back. So you, you do that kind of to, to, to Joe's point around the long, long term further out. And then as you get closer, it's okay, well, how are they actually hiring? How is that changing? What, what do we need to do? And then as you get closer, you, uh, once again, into the real time, you start looking at, okay, well, how, how does sentiment analysis land for this? And, and if we're looking at Glassdoor and Indeed or our exit surveys, whatever it may be, like how things move it or the competitor hiring rates or whatever it is, that kind of real time, what's going on here and now. Um, I don't think we're there yet at all. And I don't think the, the, the company I was at when we we're doing that is there yet. 
But I think that that's where I could see things going. And that's particularly when you start merging Intel functions. So when you start tying in really, really closely with competitive intelligence, with business intelligence, with market intelligence, that that's when a lot of this stuff starts to get seen more holistically on that, that early warning threat detection. Yeah, I, I love that. Just, you know, and, and I think we it's another phrase I think we might start start stealing a little bit, though, though it does sound a little bit like, you know, having had this whole conversation about human capital, suddenly we're, we're talking about, you know, them in a, in a threat environment and people being stolen. It's funny, isn't it, how easy it is to fall into different languages because that's how critical skills are, right, to, to organisations. I am, um, uh, Joe. I'm, I'm going to ask you one more question because, in fact, I wanted to I wanted to explore um, the move to skills with you. But I think for the sure. purpose of today, that's going to take us another hour. So I'm going to commit you without you. I'm going to commit you on air actually to coming back and doing another podcast where we can talk about the move to skills because I know then we can talk a whole bunch about career pathways. Um, so so forgive me. I've committed you to doing another one on air already. Um, uh, and, and but I wanted to to just um, touch on when you talked at the beginning, um, you talked about the impact of technology on talent and the impact of talent on technology, and then we kind of said we'll explore that. Um, <laughs> we'll explore that a, a, a little bit more for those people listening to this podcast who wonder why I've just snorted. That's because we've we've just had a comment in the chat that said Alison is she who must be obeyed. <laughs> it's made me snort with laughter um so joe could you i wish that were true um joe could you just expand more on because we cut across you right at the beginning beginning impact of technology on talent and the impact of talent on technology uh, yeah glad to i think that the technology on talent gets a lot of uh, attention i mean clearly it changes how you look at talent acquisition, the tools that you can use. We talk about you know, changing how you train and develop the workforce that you have, how your workforce interacts with you know, things like HR and the business. So there's an awful lot of uh, technology is upending the entire talent experience. And I think that that gets a lot of... Um, you know, a lot of discussion and, you know, Josh Burson, you know, makes his, his living off of, you know, talking about exactly that these days. Um, but the other is you have to have the right skills to be able to use or enable the, the technology. You have to have the right education in your talent to be able to use it. So a, a simple example for you is a big push today is towards um, the use of artificial uh, intelligence and predictive analytics, um, computational intelligence right around the corner. But one of the interesting things that you know has been learned again and again is you can have a brilliant piece of AI that goes in, looks at your data and says, okay, um, Toby, here are the, the five you need to watch. Brilliant. But if that tool is doing it and the people, it, it's coming up with different answers than people into it, or if people don't understand how it came to those answers, there's a lot of instances of people who they dismiss the, the AI, turn it off. I don't want it. No, it's got to be wrong because it doesn't match my preconceived notion or didn't get to the answer the way I thought it should. So 
we know that if you don't have the right mindset in your your people, it's easy for them to dismiss those kind of advances they could be getting from technology. Or if they don't fully embrace why you're rolling out this new piece of software, if they don't adopt it, if they don't use it, if they continue to rely on their you know, personal spreadsheets and you know, they don't put the data in the, the wonderful, beautiful new system you created for them, well, then what's the, the point? So there's a lot of areas where you have to understand, is your workforce ready for this new technology you want to thrust on them? So, you know, we have tools that we use as consultants, right, to assess the the maturity, if if you will, of your workforce for a given technology and to tell them, okay, if you want to start to roll this new equipment out in three years, here's where you need to start making some changes in the workforce that you have so that your workforce will be ready for that technology when the CIO drops it on you. So that's kind of that, that, you know, piece of the impact of, of talent on technology. I love that. And, and it's interesting, it's reminding me, and I'm about to sound really fluffy because I can't remember any of the details, but it's reminding me of a trip that I made to MIT with um, a piece of AI that was being used in hospitals in Boston to help make better diagnoses. And, and there was this lack of take up when the AI just got to the answer because the doctors and the MDs were going, well, how did it get there? I don't know if I'm going to, I'm going to revert to what I know because mm. this seems to have jumped ahead by 15 stages. But actually when it took the MDs through the decision-making process and showed them the, the kind of decision-making tree that had happened, then the adoption was much greater and they saw the advantages because better decisions were being made. But they had to take people on the journey through the technology. So that ties exactly into what you were talking about. Yeah, so, so that's what we, we think about, right, is, is how do we help our clients to think of their workforce in light of this? There's always a change management piece and, you know, getting people to, you know, through the, all of the all of the upheaval that's going on. And, you know, so there's, there's that aspect of it as well. But really, it's that everybody's becoming a technology company or a technology organization these days. But if that's driven just from the CIO shop or just from the CFO trying to you know, drive business efficiencies, if you ignore the workforce aspect of that, then that's where you, you're, you're hampered. So that's kind of what we're, um, what we try to look at with our clients, especially when they want to make a, an enormous leap in, in technology or they see one coming from, like I said, the CIO is planning to unleash this new advancement on them. It, it's how do you help them to be ready for it? So that's, that's what I was trying to get at. Excellent. Joe, thanks so much for that. Um, I think you may have set a record, by the way, longest podcast so far. But take that as a massive compliment, because to Alison's point earlier, we could have just carried on talking to you for hours, without a doubt. Thank you so much for your time. Um, Thank Bert, you for inviting me. No worries at all. But your your host is calling a stop. We're gonna to have to release you back into the back into the wild now, Joe. It's been great having you on. How how have you found it? Uh, delightful, and uh, I really I really appreciate it. Um, the opportunity to be here, and um, what what a brilliant set of interviewers.
Oh, bless you. That's it. I'm not only a she who must be obeyed, but also a brilliant interviewer. I'm I'm taking that definitely today. You're a star, Joe. You've Joe, got it, Alison. You've got that badge. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> uh, again, Joe, thanks. And to our listeners, thanks for you guys as well, listening in and for supporting us and telling your friends about us and all that good stuff. And if you aren't doing that, do start doing it. Um, if you haven't got any friends... Join the Facebook group, the Talent Intelligence Collective Facebook group. And I think there's a WhatsApp group as well. But if you join the Facebook group, Toby will tell you about the WhatsApp group. You'll find loads of like-minded people in there. And and on that note, everyone, stay intelligent. Thanks for listening. Before you go, I wanted for the last time to remind you about our generous sponsor, Stratagens. Here's that posh chap again telling you about their fabulous product. Strategens gives HR leaders the data they need to transform businesses with the speed and ease required in today's world. If you're ready to make decisions that aren't lengthy, costly, one-dimensional, or based on gut feeling, visit strategens.com. That's S-T-R-A-T-I-G-E-N-S.com to register for a Wednesday demo drop-in and find out more.